mindful recoveries We're healing the past and growing so subtly It all happened suddenly From bad to better, the puzzles together We're sharing our stories Here to help, not here for the glory So check out the combo Defeating illusions, the champion's combo Boom. It says it. Can you see it? I can see it. All right. I see the light. Yeah, right. Welcome, everybody, to my podcast. I'm actually going to be sharing this on two channels. So we're not going to say what podcast it's on, or we'll say both. It's Mindful Recoveries and Mindful Mail. Paula's got really good information for everybody. And I want to make sure as many people can hear it as possible. And Paula, who are you? Ah, that's a question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like, you want my creds, ma'am? Yeah, what do you got? Well, I'm a mediator, I'm a minister, I'm a mom, I'm a marketer. That's about it. What kind of minister? I am an independent unity minister. So mm -hmm. basically, I belong nowhere, but uh, I have a center that uh, used to meet, you know, in an actual place in Cocoa Village called the Gathering, the Village Gathering. And uh, now we meet virtually and then uh, at our home here in Denver on Thursday nights. And we meet virtually Friday mornings as well. Yeah. yeah. And I forgot, do you want to pray? Nah, I'm always no? praying. Every, word, every word's a prayer. Okay. I was going to try to duplicate what you do Thursdays. Ah, uh, you're so sweet. Yeah. Well, tell, tell us about your story. You said you're a minister. And one of the things I like to give to people is hope for recovery you know, financially, spiritually, you know, whatever the topic is. And I know you have some, some recovery stories to share with different issues. So you grew up in, was it Indiana or Illinois? Illinois. Illinois right? I was born in Indiana, but yeah, but I grew up in, in Illinois outside of Chicago. And mm -hmm. my dad had killed himself when I was just two months before I turned four. So I had a lot of issues around that and thought like suicide was a viable option. So kept trying to off myself from the time I was eight years old until I was 21 when I got sober. So like I never even got to like, you know, really hang out at the bars and stuff. <laughs> I got, got sober before it was legal to be out there drinking. Um, but yeah, I just, um, you know, I spent four days in a coma and uh, had three cardiac arrests. And um, I was really fortunate about six months after that incident, you know, which landed me in the Elmhurst General Hospital, a New York City hospital psych ward don't recommend it to anybody <laughs> it was a very creepy place um, but i remember are. telling <laughs> telling my therapist she was like you know i'm sitting here with an order to you know have you committed to bellevue you know because this is like the last straw kind of thing and she, i distinctly remember saying to her i said can you call me back in 20 minutes i have to think about it you know that's how screwed up i was mentally i was just like but I had the good fortune about six months later, I, I twisted my ankle in a softball game, an AA softball game, and wound up in the same emergency ward. And this guy just keeps looking at me. He's like, looking at my folder, looking at me, looking at my folder, looking at me. He goes, you don't remember me, do you? And I'm like, you know, what did I do? <laughs> you know, I don't remember dating a doctor. And uh, he said that he was the doctor on call when I came in unconscious after my drug overdose. And they tried four times and the other doctor was like, just give up, you know, even if we get her started again, because my heart had stopped, she's just going to try and kill herself again. So just, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, we have to try one more time. And that's what started my heart beating again. How long and, were you dead for? I didn't know you actually died. <laughs> yeah, I, I, 
so I don't know how long they were working on me. I'm assuming an hour or so. You know, they just kept trying and it would start and then stop again and start and then stop again. There was so much drugs in my system. And but I was in a coma for four days. I came out of it on my 21st birthday. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. You were reborn. Oh, yeah. And they were like, do, do you know what who the president is? I'm like, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and they was like, you know, do you know what day it is? And I was like, not really. And they were like, it's August 17th. And smart ass that I am. I went, why well, aren't you going to wish me happy birthday? <laughs> did they? Did they buy oh, you a yeah, cake? They did. They did. <laughs> <laughs> but I looked like cake. I was nine months pregnant. They'd pumped so much charcoal in my system. In oh, my the stomach. Absorb. Oh, yeah. It was just like. What drug was yeah. that? Um, God, I remember it was Ativan and um, a bunch of other, whatever prescriptions I had on hand. Like the, I was, them all. Yeah, I was seeing a therapist, but I was also seeing a, a psychiatrist in New York City um, who was sub- prescribing me. And my doctor, my therapist kept saying one week at a time, one week at a time, you know, just that much drugs. And every single time she would prescribe me for a month's worth. So every week I'd go in and get another month's worth <laughs> of drugs. And I was like, sweet. So I just took them all. And they said that that day I chose not to drink when I took all the drugs because I was afraid I'd throw them up. And the paramedic said that that's probably what saved my life was the fact that I hadn't had the alcohol at the same time. You were serious, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanted I just wanted everything to stop, you know, just wanted the peace and quiet. And yeah, so it was a little intense. But when I woke up, it was fascinating because I think that's why I became a minister was when I came out, or I guess when I was in the coma, um, I distinctly felt the presence of my dad, who had died, and my great grandmother, who had passed away when I was 16, and she and I were very close. And they, you know, I saw the tunnel, the whole nine yards, and then they were like, okay, you know, time for us to go now, we got to go back. And I was like, okay, great, I'm ready to go. And they're like, no, 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 you have to go back. And I was like, no. And they're like, no, you have things to do. I'm like, complete i'm good and they were like nope you gotta go back and the next thing i know i was back in my body and they were gone hmm. but i also felt the presence of what i call jesus I and mean, it was just amazing bright light it was so beautiful and relaxing and safe and loving and i was just like i'm good let's go you know and i came back and i was like okay what's mine to do now so so you had a whole different attitude Oh, yeah. Sounds like you had a whole mental cleansing, like this whole wash of the mind, kind of. Yeah. And I I wasn't afraid of dying anymore, which meant I wasn't afraid of living. So it was kind of a cool thing. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do what's mine to do, you know, for as long as I'm here. Yeah. But you, you didn't go to college, right? I did. I went to Grinnell College, but I dropped out after two years because I came out my like shortly i got to college and i turned 18 a few weeks later and then i came out and my parents threatened to like come get me it was back in the day when you know they wanted to stick me in a psych ward and give me you some electro shock sexuality wise yeah, I, I came out as a lesbian yeah yeah and um so they you know were threatening to have someone come and get me and the school was like you're an adult what do you want to do i'm like i want to stay but they cut me off financially so i couldn't afford so I managed to go a semester and a half at Grinnell, and then I had to drop out. And then I went to NYU for about a year. Um, but then I had to choose because right about then was when I got sober. So it was like stay in school or stay sober. And so I chose stay sober. So was, that, was that one of the motivations? 15 degrees shy of my uh, bachelor's degree. <laughs> 15 credits? 
15 credits yeah 15 oh credits, no so, yeah. it's like three that's like three classes oh yeah and one, <laughs> one of them is writing 101 so i'm like really i'm gonna pay a grand <laughs> to take a writing course you know, i wish my I've classes were only a grand yeah. <laughs> no a lot of i'm learning college is is not so much about the information but uh self-discipline and like doing things you don't want to do yeah and how that gives you rewards sometimes yep that's what i'm learning about college <laughs> Well, it's funny because you know, as a as a mediator, if I wanted to teach, which I you know has always been on my list to be a college professor to do mediation and negotiation, I'd have to have not only my bachelor's but a master's. Yet I've been asked to speak. I've been a guest lecturer at different colleges for mediation classes, and I'm like, that's good enough. You know, I don't need to be on faculty somewhere and have rules. You know. So is that what got you to New York? Was uh college and your sexuality was it a little of both or no so it was writing so when i was at grinnell my third semester there i submitted an article to a new york newspaper and they published it wow and i was like i'm big wig <laughs> so i dropped out of college and went to new york and became a writer that's pretty good yeah to get a new york publisher like that yep was the what was the cost of living like there that must have Outrage, been scary. Outrageous. Yeah. I, sh I shared um, when I lived in um, uh, Queens, I had a little tiny garden apartment. Um, and then when I moved to New York, I lived in a loft. There were like six of us that lived in the loft. And then I finally got to now the place is a NYU uh, dorm. It was the old Washington Hotel. So it was literally like a 10 by 12 apartment that had a bathtub and a sink that was like this big and a closet like I couldn't if my futon was flat I couldn't open my little refrigerator that's how tiny it was and so I lived there and I think back then that was like 350 bucks or something a month I can't even imagine yeah, it was like now. a 75 cent minimum wage or yeah. something <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay I think I'm gonna move to Maryland so that's what I did move to the DC area so were you like uh, a freelance writer or did you work for someone yeah freelance uh, stringer and then i became a columnist for uh, a newspaper that's defunct now called the baltimore alternative and then i later became their executive editor years later but i nice i syndicated myself because i was like okay i gotta make more money than you know they were paying 25 bucks a column so i had a book review column and a movie review column and then i syndicated it to like eight or ten different um you know queer related i love that word queer um newspapers across the country and then i had a column for a chicago magazine called hot wire um doing video reviews like collections of things that were thematic that was a lot of fun so yep nice and that was you moved there do you move there post um sobriety coma like right <laughs> yes, after post coma. no i stayed in new york for i guess almost a year a little over a year you know, that whole don't do a geographic till you get your first year of sobriety. And mm -hmm. then I moved to the to the D.C. area and just lived different areas, different places around there until I bought my house out by the Chesapeake. Oh, I didn't know you had actually a house. I thought you had a boat. No, that was that was after I lost my house in foreclosure. <laughs> you know, when I lost my job um, at a, a publishing company and I used up all my savings, it was a HUD. You know, that's why I'm so passionate about teaching people about financial stuff. And how to negotiate things because I used up all my savings to keep paying my mortgage and then I called them up to tell them I wasn't going to be able to pay the next month's mortgage and why and they were like oh 
we wish you'd called us a year ago. We have this program that would have frozen your um, your uh, mortgage payment for up to three years. Up to three years? Yeah. Little known thing. Yeah, so I didn't then, know that existed. Yeah. So then uh, they put me in that program, but by then I'd used up all my savings, of course. And then uh, they foreclosed because they it was, um, I forget what the name of the original company was that was got into all sorts of trouble financially for things, but Aquin was new company backwards and it was the same company. They just reinvented themselves and they tried to demand the entire three years worth of oh, mortgage yeah. payments at one time. <laughs> and by then I was working at the newspaper in Baltimore. And so my attorney said, what do you want to do? I said, let them have it. So they foreclosed on the house and we also signed an agreement that it would disappear off my credit report and I wouldn't sue them because they were doing it to people all over the country. And so I moved up to Baltimore. And then uh, after I left the newspaper, I uh, lived on a houseboat. So that was a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I had like the exact same thing happen in 2000, what, 10? The, the Great Recession. Yes. Yeah. And it, it was, uh, I guess there was a big class action lawsuit like a year later because they had gotten, Wells Fargo had gotten a, a huge chunk of money from the government to make mm -hmm. sure not to foreclose on people. And then they just did it anyway. Yep. And, yeah. And it's, it was such a pain in the butt. Like if you called them and didn't use the very precise language, the legal language that they had on their own documents, they wouldn't, they'd be like, no, oh, yeah. we don't have anything like oh, that. Oh yeah. Yep. And it was fascinating because when, when all of that happened, the, you know, between 2008 and 2010, 11, when everybody was losing their homes and stuff, I did a lot of negotiations because a lot of the companies were asking for a balance, you know, after they sold it, you'd have to pay whatever was the remainder. Mm -hmm. And so my negotiation was getting people out from under that. And I remember somebody paid me and uh, in six minutes, I had a resolution where the company agreed to completely make it go away. And the woman from the mortgage company was like, from the bank was like, how did you manage to, to my client? And she just, my client just slides my card across the table. <laughs> to her. She was like, this lady, <laughs> call <Yeah>. this lady. <laughs> I got lucky. They didn't, they didn't do anything. I lost like 50 grand in value, yeah. but after it was said and done, they're like, you don't owe us anything. I was like, Whew. Yeah. yeah, thank God. Yeah. But I mean, what are they going to, yeah. I mean, what are they going to do? I looked, uh, six months ago, I looked at real estate in that same area and it hasn't done anything. Yeah. And that's kind of weird. Yeah. That doesn't seem right. But. Well, it goes up and down and up and down. And like now, like even here in Denver, because there's been such a glut of, new buildings built even in the midst of the pandemic and stuff that rental prices are going down or at least the the, the estimated Good. amount of them you know which is making them much more reasonable so yeah thank god yeah because <laughs> i'm thinking it's about been, going it's back been there. crazy out here yeah 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 i was thinking about going back there uh, i got stuff to take care of that you know yeah. about <laughs> but, uh, got some stuff to do stuff yeah. to do uh but yeah. yeah me and emily and uh when we were in san francisco we were looking at going there and how much money we'd need to save you know to yeah. get there and like provide for ourselves for a few months and it was i mean it wasn't as bad as san francisco obviously yeah. but it was still like twenty twenty five thousand dollars. oh yeah it's outrageous yeah, yeah. it's okay like i like and it there it's houses, okay it costs us almost fifteen thousand dollars to move so we're like 
Fifteen thousand. Oh, yeah. First month, last the, month. The business and yeah, first month, last month, and the moving fees. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Good things, you guys. You guys got good jobs. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and now we put our son to work. He uh, did snow removal for eleven hours. I Sunday. saw that. Oh yeah. He was knocked out. Oh, he did not wake up. So he, they got back at what, three in the afternoon, Monday, and we did not see him. He did get up and pee apparently once, but he was not awake until almost 10 o'clock Tuesday morning. Wow. That's, a, yeah. that's, that's intense. Yeah. Tell him if he, didn't if, have he, school. <laughs> if he takes all that money and changes it out for $1 bills, he'll feel like his, he'll feel really rich. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pay him in dollars. Yeah. So you, re so you recovered from alcoholism, death, mm -hmm. and sounds like financial oh, yeah. hardship. Yeah. Were you completely bankrupt? Oh, yeah. I went bankrupt. I was 21 when I went bankrupt. So in addition to getting sober, I was like, I gotta, gotta do this. And so I did that. And then I started, you know, rebuilding. And that's how I bought my house and, you know, all that stuff. And I had a friend um, in New York who was going through bankruptcy and she was like, you know, every week she'd call me, okay, what do I do about this? What do I do about this? And, you know, I was commuting like an hour and a half to work and she goes, okay, could you just write all this down? It'd be so much easier if you just like wrote a book about it and, you know, I could just read whatever I need to know. And so that's when I wrote the first edition of Bounce Back from Bankruptcy. And now it's in its fourth edition, which is pretty much outdated now as far as some of the contact oh. information. But we're doing another smaller version like we did the first one because we sold them in bulk to bankruptcy attorneys so they could get them out to more people. That's pretty smart. Yeah, people will read a small book, like a 60-page book. They won't read a 250-page book. So, Especially about bankruptcy. Like, Yeah, gross. so we're going back to the basics. And then I'll add on my website, we're going to start adding more um, of the updated content for people. So, you know, updated links and numbers and, and information and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's incredible how much difference it makes just to be able to help someone. Like I do a lot of um, pre-bankruptcy counseling, what we call. So attorneys, if there's someone that they don't think is a good candidate or they do think is a good candidate for bankruptcy, but the people are afraid for some reason, you know, I'm an unbiased. It's not like I have any vested interest, whether they do or don't declare bankruptcy like an attorney might. And so I've got attorneys who will refer people to me. And I'll be like, no, if you just do this, this and this, you can avoid bankruptcy. But if this happens, then you're going to wind up, you know, in bankruptcy and have this other issue. So I basically walk them through what their options are. And so people pay me to do that. You know, I also help people restore their credit reports because there's so many scams out there. You know, I help people figure out how to get your credit rating back up and take care of messy stuff that's on the credit report. So, yeah, it's way more delicate today because i i have a similar story i didn't die unfortunately no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> well i'm but, glad i died but was born again <laughs> yeah. but when i was 23 i definitely had life-altering spiritual experiences you know because i failed so miserably in my life up to that point and you know financial bankruptcy was definitely part of it and i climbed out but you could you know rebuild your credit real easy and if what you missed a payment, you, yeah, uh, 2004. Okay. Yeah. And then if you missed a payment, it wasn't a big deal. Like it yeah. wouldn't knock you all the way down, but now it's really, really sensitive. 
Oh yeah, because they've given all this power to credit scores. I don't and like it. And it's like you know, if you, if you you know rebuild your credit, you know, in ways that are equal, like you're saving and paying off, or you do the bankruptcy and then you start, you know, from a fresh start kind of thing. You know, my philosophy is, you know, you don't ever have to buy anything on credit. You know, you can stay save up and be able to buy with cash. Like I've I've had my car, I paid off my car. So the Subaru I have is the first car I've ever owned that I bought brand new. So I paid it off. It's been five, six years since I've had a car loan. And I got it, enough money to buy a new one. Well, I did. It's an incredible <laughs> car. Um, and I had to take it into the to the shop because it was doing some weird, you know, lights flashing stuff. So basically five grand later, I had like a brand new car inside and I was driving it home from the dealer and it completely cut off when I stopped at a stoplight. So I called them up and I'm like, I'm bringing it back. Well, it turned out there, I thought you said twerk, but there's a torque. Torque? Yeah, the torque something. Um, the torque response or somebody, I forget what she called it, in the transmission wasn't properly working. And it's something that a couple of years ago in models, they changed the part because apparently this was a common thing. Well, most people apparently don't keep their Subarus for 11 years like I have. Um, it looks pretty brand new. I only have 130,000 miles on it. So really, yeah. So Subaru is wow. paying for it, even though it's not a recall item. They're paying for it. So for the last two weeks, a brand new Subaru has been sitting in my driveway. You know, we got snowed in, so I haven't driven it anywhere. But uh, same model, Friday, this new year. Yeah, same model. Well, no, it's the lower end of the Subaru Outback because I got the high end because I bought it um, from a dealer who'd put um, 1,500 miles on it already. And I was like, I'll take that one. And I want all the depreciation gone. So I got a really good deal on it. So this one's like, a, I'm like, what? There's no remote start. If you're trying to entice me to buy a new Subaru, this is not the way. <laughs> you know? That's a good add on though. That's an yeah. easy add on. No, no heated seat. Oh, no, no. You know, no heated steering wheel. I'm like, come on guys. <laughs> no, you can't do that. Not in, yeah. not in Denver. So yeah, I yeah. plan on putting another couple hundred thousand on it and rebuilding the, uh, the new car fund. Might as well. Yeah. I like, like Dave Ramsey. Choices like that. You know, people get so caught up in, you know, I need a new car. Or I need this, um, that they start making decisions that get them back into financial trouble. So I just, yeah, I like Dave Ramsey. Ramsey's approach. He's pretty solid. He can be a little extreme though. Like he's, he's like, you know, just rice and beans. That's all, that's all you're eating. I'm right. like, no, <laughs> he's, also, he's also very anti-bankruptcy, which I find interesting since he declared bankruptcy to get back on a financial footing before he started his programs and stuff. So Yeah, I could see that being yeah. his story. Like I tell people, you know, debtors anonymous, you know, people go in there and they're like, don't go bankrupt. And I'm like, look, you know, if I hadn't gone bankrupt, I wouldn't have stayed sober. So, you know, you use bankruptcy as a fresh start and then you work the DA program and you know, spot on. So yeah, I never had the courage to do it. Yep. I don't know why. Cause it can be a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I think it's pride. Program. Yeah. It's what it was. It was pride. Yep. Usually my number one problem is, is pride. excessive pride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it comes in handy when you're doing a project and you want to be really good at it. That's right. But then, but then after that, it's kind of yeah. like, Eh. <laughs> yeah. I don't need that. I mean, I was serious when I got 
into recovery because when I first started, I went out again after 60 days because I could con my sponsor. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm doing it right. So I went to not one, but two meetings every day. And I had two sponsors. One was a executive for Jimboree who moved out to San Francisco. And the other one was a former prostitute. So whatever I was going to do, I had to make sure I called both of them because I could, you know, pull the wool over one of them's eyes, but not both of them, no matter what yeah. it was. So <laughs> I needed the village approach. I needed, yeah. you know, three or four. I had like an AA and then an Al-Anon and then a couple yep. other people, you know. And I had a list. I want to say it was like 20 people. <laughs> and if I even thought about picking up, I had to make sure I called every single person. And if I got a voicemail, I had to leave a message. If I got a live person, I had to talk to them. <laughs> there was no <laughs> like, oh, two rings, hang up. <laughs> I had to work the list. So. And I was never that disciplined. I just, well, I, I was, I, I was too afraid of people, to be honest. But when you spend four days, you know, in a coma and then two weeks in a city psych ward and your option is stay sober or go to Bellevue, you know, the Bellevue state hospital, you know, psyche ward, um, you get serious. You get some motivation. Yeah. I was highly motivated. You said like when you woke up from your coma, you had this, this presence around you that you thought was, or you call it Jesus, yeah. this safety and warmth. What did that become a powerful force in your life from that, from that moment? I think it did. Or I was mean, it always there or? I don't think it was. I mean, I never really paid attention to it. We didn't go to, you know, we went for Easter and Christmas to churches and stuff. Um, and then I started my junior year in high school, I guess. We lived in such a small town of 550 people. There was this adorable little church, country church. And so I started going to their adult Bible study class. And I think that's where I got my interest in theology. Because well before I became a minister, I was, you know, more of a theologian. And the minister there would, you know, I'd ask him a question. He'd be like, that's a really good question. I got a book you should read. So he would never, ever answer my questions. He'd just give me something to read that would spark the next book that I'd be like, okay, here's my next question. Um, so I had that, you know, like a deep spirituality. And I remember once before um, I wound up in my coma, I was laying on the floor of my apartment and my girlfriend at the time was sitting there and I was just laying there. I was like, God, sometimes I feel like I'm Jesus. And her ex was a psychiatric nurse. <laughs> she oh, goes, no. She goes, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> she goes, please don't ever say that out loud in front of other people. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think that opened the door toward, you know, new thought. You know, the new oneness. Thought. Yeah, Describe that. that. I don't think, a lot of people don't know what new thought is. Oh, so, so new thought is like, you know, science of mind, religious science, divine science is my personal favorite. You know, but the, the basic overriding tenet is, you know, I'm one with everything because God is everything and everywhere and not like, you know, the, the Christian version of God, but like that benevolent presence of light and love and stuff. And that it's all powerful um, and it's all knowing. And therefore, so am I, if I get into that stillness, you know, that's the truth of who I am. And so by knowing that I already am everything, that means I already have everything, which created a really interesting consciousness in my mind. So I don't know if any of your, your podcast viewers have heard of Catherine Ponder, for example, she's a longtime unity minister has written like 20 books on prosperity. And it was one of her books. Um, that really changed my life. But that's, I wrote a book called Giving Thanks 
The Art of Tithing that she wrote the forward to and Gildan Media, you know, your coach in a box, um, those guys, they mm. took over that title and my new book, uh, Manifest the Perfect Mate. The new cover is really cool because it has a guy. You can see the back of him. He's got his arms outstretched. Um, and is that one out now for sale? Uh, ch check on Amazon because I know that we just approved the new cover for the Manifest the Perfect Mate. Um, but The Art of Tithing, they switched the subhead and the title on that book. So The Art of Tithing should be out already because I think we approved that cover a couple months ago. So Nice. I remember you sent me the rough draft for... Yeah, you were one of my readers. Yeah, that felt really Very cool. instrumental. You're mentioned in the book. Am I really? Yes, you <sighs> are. I got to go read it now. Gonna, I got to buy 10 of them. That's right. <laughs> it's funny because I have like a small stack still of the uh, the one that um, New Thought Classics put out, uh, but Gildan Media is putting it out now. So Nice. Yep. Uh, so New Thought is kind of a branch of Christianity. Maybe yeah, even practical rooted. Christianity. Well, if you really get into it, it's you can see it represents Jesus's word directly from the gospel, not something yeah. that's been interpreted to a modern, like a modern church doesn't really interpret it that same way. Yeah. Totally different foundation. Actually, oh yeah. Say. I don't remember which unity book I was reading. Might've been like teach us to pray or something, but in there, you know, I used to get a lot of letters from people saying, you know, I'm praying for you because you're not a real Christian and you're going to go to hell, you know, because of your beliefs. And, and, you know, do you accept Jesus Christ as your savior? And so I'd write him back and I'd be like, Actually, I do, but let, I think the way I interpret that might be different. And so I'd tell them the little line from Teach Us to Pray where it said, um, accepting Jesus Christ as your savior means being willing and ready to live your life as Jesus lived his, to come from that same mindset that he had of extending love into situations and coming from a place of peace. And I remember I, the first time I read it, I was in a um, coffee shop just reading my little book, drinking my coffee. And all of a sudden I just blurred out loud. I accept Jesus Christ as my savior. And everyone just like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, Oh, did I say that out loud. I'm like, sorry guys. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, I mean, he's pretty clear. He's like, if you love me, do what I do. And then, yeah. you know, most of the people I know that, well, I don't want to be too judgmental, but uh, often that's not the case. Yeah. Is what I found. Like he's very, it's not like there's a lot of room for misinterpretation nope. in what he said. <laughs> you know? It's really. <laughs> but I think like the issue of like, you know, love people as you love yourself or do unto others as you do for your, you know, unto yourself. The problem is w most of us don't like ourselves. You know, I was talking to a client. Was it yesterday? Yesterday's Tuesday, right? And, uh, she was worried about, you know, how someone else was perceiving her at work and stuff and, and the value of her. And uh, I said, well, who's the person that devalues yourself the most? And she was like, myself, you know, and she's the one who talks trash. She was like, if anybody in my life talked to me the way I talk to myself, I'd be like, see ya. But that's what we do. You know, we treat ourselves like crap. We're the ones who abandon ourselves, you know. Whatever issue you've got, you've got trust issues, I don't trust myself. I got abandonment issues, I abandon myself the most. You know, I don't think other people are worth of, worthy of me. I don't think I'm worthy. You know, it's just a nonstop reflection, reflection. Yeah, it's Carl Jung's projection, right? Like that's his concept of projection. 
Oh, did I remember I mentioned the therapist I had in New York? Jungian mm -hmm. therapist, three years, personally trained by Robertson Davies. She was Canadian. He was personally trained by Jung. Wow. What was that like? That always, it was, I'm, I'm I was fascinated because, you know, she had the couch and then she had the chair. So you'd lay down? No, I never would. I'd sit down on the couch and I'd, every week I'd go, okay, this is going to be the week I lay down. And I'd just sit there. <laughs> and she was like, you're not going to lay down, are you? I'm like, no. It's that trust thing, right? I was like, mm -mm. not giving up the power. Yeah, I'm not. I'm playing where I can't see you. You kidding me? You know? So yeah, three years I never once laid down on the couch. Is is it really in depth? Is there like a lot of imagery, symbology? Like, do they really analyze dreams, or you know, how's that really work? So I don't remember the dream analyzing, but I analyzed every minute point of my life up until that point, like just broke it down so that I could see, you know, where it wasn't those people out there that had done something to me, you know, moving from the victim to, oh, wait a minute. You know, these were the choices I made and owning them without feeling guilty about it or beating myself up, just simply like, okay, I chose this. Would I choose that again now? And sometimes the answer was yes. You know, because I wasn't ready yet. And other times it was like, no, I do this instead. You know, so I learned so many coping skills. Yeah, I really love psych. I, I got a lot of help from therapy. Yeah. Mine was mindful based, okay. kind of like a yeah. DBT. Yep. And, uh, but, you know, the my therapist was a PhD and just we related very well intellectually. And so it, I needed that level of respect for my therapist. I needed yeah. to have some kind of respect for someone. Yeah. Because I otherwise I just, you know, I'm arrogant. So I just roll my eyes and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I would just get quiet. Well, that's when I'm judging them. Yeah. Like, yes. I'm, <laughs> like Sandy does, like when she rolls her eyes, but she's not really rolling her eyes. Right. And the room feels it. And we're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's pretty cool. I like, I like Jung. He's one of my favorites. It's, I found it really difficult. You know, it really applies when I'm judging people a lot, you know, so like using the example I just expressed, you know, someone I think is unintelligent, you know, am I, do I really think this person is unintelligent or do I think myself is unintelligent yeah. and incapable? And then, you know, the, th something I've always had to struggle with and maybe someday when I'm more mature, I'd, I'll decide <clears throat> I'm choosing to make it last longer than it needs to. But getting in touch with it and like seeing it clearly for what yeah. it oh like oh shit like this is mine, you know like it, yeah, it, yeah. that can take some time and that you know I find that really annoying. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I talked about it last week. You know, you get to that place where you like where you know I just once don't want to have to analyze the judgment I made about somebody else and look at where do I do that to me? I just don't want to, you know. The solution is not to yeah. interact with people. That's yeah. that's <laughs> just ignore <laughs> but all But until people. you actually look at it and analyze it, and you go, "Oh, that's where I do that to me," you know, then it disappears. Yeah, you know, it starts to just get weaker and weaker, and then suddenly it's gone. You know, so you don't find yeah. yourself having to judge. Yeah, I, I kind of look at it like um, you get stuck in the lens, like mm -hmm. with a certain set of glasses on, that's all judgmental. And like judging yourself, like those are all projections, but when you meditate, you can achieve the state of like, you're aware that you're doing it, 
but that that's not you. Like it's yeah. just an old bad habit. Yep. It's still running on automatic. And you can stop yourself in the process. You know, you can start and you go, oh, did I ever tell you? And then you realize what you're going to do. And you're like, yeah, it wasn't important. Yeah. I was going to slam this person verbally, but now I'm not going yeah. to. <laughs> but I'm, you know what? I'm just going <laughs> to you know, just let it go. <laughs> I'm getting there again. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Takes practice. Yeah. I listen to my instincts about it. Yeah. Um, so what, what are your suggestions for people since you've overcome, overcome so much? And granted, you had some extreme experiences that yeah. you know maybe most people haven't, but it did change your mindset. How how would it like? How would you say you've cultivated that mindset into something that helps you on a daily basis? Well, the first thing I did was just create some basic um, coping skills, because when I kept trying to off myself, I had zero coping skills. Alcohol was my coping skill. You know, so I started like, what do I like to do? You know, so whenever I'd start to get upset, I'd take a walk. You know, I'd call the list, you know, um, hot bubble baths, you know, things like that became like a go-to. Or if I wanted a drink, you know, gin and tonic was my drink. So I'd make my little glass with my ice and my lime and my, you know, only Schweppes because any other kind of tonic water is disgusting. Um, and then I would just have carry that around with me as if I had an actual drink, you know, until I realized I didn't need that anymore. There was a period when I was writing when it, right when I got sober, when I realized I couldn't write because I was a smoker. So after a year of sobriety, I was also giving up smoking. So <laughs> I was like, oh, dear. So I literally, my sponsor was like, you know, set yourself up at your typewriter. You know, get your little tonic water with your lime, you know, in your little tumbler you like, and then get your ashtray out and cinnamon sticks. That's you know, a good they're idea. The right, they're the right size. So I literally, I'd sit everything down. I put the cigarette, you know, the cinnamon stick in the ashtray, like it's a cigarette. And I'd have my sip and I'd start, you know, I'd pick up my, my cinnamon stick and I put it in my lip. And then eventually it was like, it was like one of those old fashioned reporters, you know, I've got the cinnamon stick in my mouth and I'm on a roll and I'm typing and typing. And then cinnamon sticks, if you've never held one in your mouth very long, will burn your lip. Oh so yeah. Like, I know cinnamon like, sticks. Well, like if you're smoking a cigarette and it burns down too close, all of a sudden you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, that's what would happen. The same thing. <laughs> yeah. But like literally, I don't remember how long it took, but um, she would have me, you know, set myself up and then call her. And she'd be like, okay, write for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it was, and call me back. So I'd sit in front of my, my, it was a typewriter back then, not a computer. And I'd be like, this is boring. I can't type anything. I have no idea what to write, you know, for 15 minutes. <laughs> like stream of conscious? Oh yeah. Like this is the most stupid thing in the world, you know, and then I'd call her. And then, you know, and usually I was on deadline. So yeah. again, la, 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 drink my little, smoke my little cinnamon stick, you know, la, 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 call her again. And then eventually after a few cycles of this every single time, she wouldn't hear from me for several hours. And then I'd call and go, my draft's done. You know, because eventually I, the stream of consciousness would flow into, well, let me just make a comment about this one piece about what, what I'm writing about. You know, and then this other piece. And so eventually you get out of your head. And I think it was just stuff like that. The walking, the bubble bath, all that stuff just got me out of my head. And I also picked I up my harmonica. I hadn't, hadn't been playing my harmonica and I picked that up and I would wander around New York City playing my harmonica. Outside? Yeah. It's New York. You can do whatever you want. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I dare I you once, to do it in Denver. <laughs> I once walked up Broadway at three in the morning because I didn't realize that the um, 
subways, the buses stopped, but the subways were still going. And I'd been told, don't ever ride the subway at night. So I literally walked up Broadway, straight through Times Square, all the way up to Lincoln Center to my friend's apartment. And the whole time I was just muttering to myself, you know, I was just like, how many, you know, how many blocks do I have to go? Why did I stay at the club so late? Blah, 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 blah. And I see people like homeless people move across the street from me. And I'm like, oh, this is the way. Just pretend you're insane. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> Talk to yourself going up Broadway. Sweet. <laughs> you know? Maybe you should write a book about that with the ever increasing homeless population now in New York. That's right. I heard they're in some serious trouble. Oh, yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Even here in Denver. Yeah, like all the fancy cities that used to be super desirable are, yep. I'm a little worried about it just cause I, mostly cause I'm selfish. I like going to those big cities and I really want to live there, but like, I don't think San Francisco is realistic unless I can make 250 a year or so. Yeah. So, I mean, that's going to be tough. Well, well maybe not. Yeah. What's interesting here in Denver is, you know, it used to be homeless people, maybe they had a tarp, and, you know, they'd have their shopping cart full of stuff and whatever, you know, almost every single place you go, everyone's in tents, like nice tents. So I'm assuming people have donated tents and stuff because you don't see anybody out under just a tarp and stuff. Even the guys that camp in the woods over here by us till they get rousted are always in tents. San Francisco's like that. They hand out sleeping bags and pretty much everything you need to live outside. Yeah, because there's a lot of people that just won't go. When I lived in Boulder... I lived in the Folsom Tower and it was next to a gas station and I'd go over to the red box to get a book or something or what do you on DVD. And uh, there was this guy in a blizzard that was hunkered over by it. And I was like, dude, I said, do you, do you need a lift to the shelter or something? He's like, oh no. He said, I don't do the shelter. He said, the shelter is a scary place. He goes, I'm fine out here. <laughs> and I was like, okay. That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You know, those um, freight containers, you can chop those up and make, I don't know, probably 10 or 12 little shelters for people, mm -hmm. individual yep. shelters, but yep. none of the city municipalities will let you because it's too much of a liability mm -hmm. and you can do it so cheap. Yeah. And like abandoned schools that they've had out here in different places, you know, each one of those could just be a room, you know, they've got bathrooms and you can put showers in and yeah, there's all sorts of solutions. So, yep. We'll figure it out someday. Yep. One day we have to. Yeah. When we are co-president. We're going to run 2024. There you go. Yeah, the Leo <laughs> ticket. <laughs> the Leonine party. Yeah. Sandy's going to be our manager. Oh, I like it. I like it. Duke will be the canvasser. He'll go out, rile people up. He can be our, our spokesperson. Yeah. We'll get the young, young people's vote. Maybe. Yeah. It's possible. Well, I'm you the irreverent could. Rev, so that, you know. I'm going to be the vice president. I'm just going to look creepy in the okay. back like, like Pence. Nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be the president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we'll do that. First thing I'm going to uh, demand is I get my face on a coin. No, you got to do that after. <sighs> okay. Unless you got enough money, I guess you could do it. I don't know. We're getting close to the one hour mark. And I know you're... Then. You're crazy busy. Yep, yep. So if you had one thing to share with someone that you loved because you knew you weren't going to be around anymore tomorrow, mm. what would that one thing be? Ooh, good question. 
that one thing would be just go for it. You know, what, whatever the thing is that you want to do that you're afraid of doing, do it. You know, I tell people when I had my publishing company and they'd write me with book ideas and stuff, I'm like, this is trite, this is overdone. I said, I want the book you're afraid to write. You know, take, take the leap. Because like, like you said, you know, you don't know whether we'll be here or not. So, you know, why not do it? You know, instead of being afraid of what other people will think or anything else like that, or I don't have the resources to do it, just do it. Start where you're at, just do it. I mean, that's, that's what I've done every day of my life since I got sober. And I think it's turning out pretty good. So <laughs> you know, far, yeah. Yeah, whenever something's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like when I decided I didn't want to do the channel anymore, New Thought Channel. You know, it was available on Roku, Apple, everywhere. And I was like, I'm done. You know, we closed the channel. And then I had the publishing company. And I was in the middle of a conversation with Mitch Horowitz, an amazing writer, about one of the books that we put out for him. And he's like, okay, so what's next? Blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, yeah, I'm thinking of closing the company. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to turn all your books over to you. And he's like, how about Jill at uh, Gildan? And I was like, okay, let's talk to Jill. So Jill took my entire catalog. Hmm. You know, so now I can write. And then Sandy's dad died. So a bunch of my time is spent managing his estate. So, you know, it's, it's I didn't know he had an estate. What do you mean? Like a farm? Well, yeah, he, he has a farm. He had two businesses. Um, he had a lot of, um, you know, other investments and accounts. He did a lot of, um, what do you call them? Uh, penny stock, um, really? pre IPO stuff. And, you know, he had the farm, he had a bunch of vehicles, you know, he had the shop where the one company was at. So just a lot of details. I didn't know he was that entrepreneurial. I knew he had a farm. Oh yeah. 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 He had, he had them when they, when she was growing up, they used to do snow removal and then he, uh, owned a bunch of, um, low budget motels and apartments and stuff in, no, DC, in really? uh, Denver. Cool. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, he was huh. always doing that. So yeah, he's a cool guy. Sounded like it, just, it. It takes a lot of time to, you know, if you don't, that's one of the things I t teach people now, you know, make sure you name beneficiaries for all parts of your state and put people's names on accounts and stuff. Cause because he didn't, we've had to put everything into the estate and then transfer it. So it's been a nightmare. Oh, I bet. And, and most people who are named executor or personal representative of someone's estate have no idea what's involved in closing the estate and filing an estate tax return and just all sorts of stuff that you don't even think about. And that's one of the services I offer. So, you know, it's all about mediation, negotiation, communication, all that stuff. So my second piece of advice would be speak your truth always authentically. Yeah. Unless you're getting arrested. Nope. <laughs> bite that one <laughs> well thank you very much thanks i'm going to leave you with a smiling face huh thanks for having me on and, and if people yeah. want to find my stuff it's paula oh. com. that's the easiest way to find me you might you're going to want to spell that it's on my little screen p-a-u-l-a-l-a-n-g-g-u-t-h-r-y-a-n.com does that come across when you record it, the little name? I think so. They're on there. Cool. And you can also find me on Medium. I'm on no social media. I think I still have a LinkedIn account for business, but I have no social media. So LinkedIn, and then we have a YouTube channel for videos. So, so send me also, a copy. We'll link or, you know, send me the link from the YouTube. We'll link it on mine. And The same, same channel, Paula Languth, Ryan? I think so. Sarah, Sarah knows all things. <laughs> Okay. Sarah, Sarah is Sarah is the most 
amazing human being on the planet. She'll be listening to this. So I got to say that, but it's true. And uh, she runs my world, my business world. Nice. Yep. Well, thank you, Sarah, for doing that for all of us. Amen. <laughs> Bye, Paula. Bye, Ryan. Thanks for having me on your show, hon. Thank you for being here.